All right, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians, we're going to be looking at chapter 15 this morning, starting into a new chapter uh, near the end of the book. As we've been studying throughout 1 Corinthians, uh, we've engaged in what some might call a long journey. Long journey. I was looking online just this past week and noticed that the first sermon I preached in the series was January 15th of this same year, in case you're really wondering. Um, Here we've been in this book for just about a year, just short of a year, and we've been trying to understand what the scriptures have said. We've noticed that in the book, Paul deals with many different problems in the Corinthian assembly. As a matter of fact, there are five large problems that he's already dealt with by the time we get to chapter 15. In chapters 1 through 4, the first problem that Paul uncovers is the problem of following after human wisdom and human leaders in the church in failing to boast in God's wisdom that was found in the cross of Christ. Just after that, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul uncovers three other serious problems in the Corinthian assembly. They had problems with immorality in the church, They also had an issue in that some of the assembly was arrogant or proud about immoral people worshiping with them. And that that also, uh, another problem was demonstrated in chapter 6 when we find out that some of them were greedy and suing each other, suing other believers down in the law courts of Corinth. And so Paul begins to systematically work through all these problems. You get to chapter 11 in the book, and Paul uncovers the problem of self-centeredness or being self-absorbed in worship at the corporate gatherings. This is what the Lord's table text was about. Paul says it's about remembering Christ, and this is what the head covering passage was about. It's about worshiping Christ, not yourself, not drawing attention to yourself. Well, in some cases, as as we've engaged in this study, and we looked at each one of these problems, we have slowed down to take weeks working through a problem so that we might fully understand it. Now, in approaching it that way, though, there's a serious danger, or there's a danger. And, And the danger is that you might lose sight of the bigger picture and the larger ramifications that go along with these individual sins that the Corinthians were insisting on. One such larger implication, I think, can become very clear to us as we look at chapter 15 and the final problem that Paul deals with. As we go throughout the 58 verses in chapter 15, we will see that Paul deals with the Corinthians' skepticism regarding bodily resurrections, but he'll demonstrate that this problem is deeper than just a skepticism regarding bodily resurrections. This problem actually touches on a compromise to the very gospel itself. As a matter of fact, the first and the final problems, as I see it in 1 Corinthians, have to do with the Corinthians being willing to compromise the gospel itself. And so what Paul does in this book is he actually frames the book in chapter 1 and chapter 15 with problems that foundationally are affecting the gospel message itself. 
Remember back in chapter one, the first problem that he introduces is their unwillingness to boast in God's wisdom found in the cross of Christ. Remember this? If you think about it, in in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul explains to them that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. He also explains just a few verses in chapter 1. He says, but we preach Christ how? Crucified, crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the wisdom and the power of God. So Paul is challenging this church in in the very first problem that he's dealing with. They're exalting human leaders, but the bigger problem is they're compromising the message of God, the cross of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul will remind them in response as he closes out this argument what he boasted in when he came and he planted the churches of Corinth. In verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him what? Crucified. So at the very beginning, Paul shows that their problem was that they were far too willing to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ, i.e. his crucifixion for sins. Well, when you come to chapter 15, you come to the final problem. I think the final problem shows the Corinthians' willingness to compromise the gospel as well. Here in chapter 15, the Corinthians were willing or unwilling to maintain belief in a bodily resurrection that resulted from Christ's resurrection as well. So you see, often the Corinthians' problems involved compromises near the very heart of the gospel itself. So Paul frames this book by showing them how their sin was impacting the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. As we begin to take a little closer look at chapter 15 this morning, we see the Corinthians' problem with skepticism. Now, this is a big chapter, right? There's a lot of information here. It's going to be very overwhelming. In my opinion, as you look at chapter 15, we're not really told what the problem is until verse 12. So look down in your Bible to see what the, what the real problem here that Paul's confronting in chapter 15 is. Uh, look at verse 12. It says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So it becomes obvious here that what happens is Paul hears from someone, maybe Chloe's people, maybe the three travelers that have made them their way from Corinth to Ephesus where Paul is. Paul hears from some people that there are some Corinthians who are saying there is no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. But I think that what what we must understand to understand this passage foundationally is that the Corinthians' failure or their rejection was not necessarily about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but they were denying the fact that believers will be resurrected bodily in the future at the return of the Lord. 
Now, as we consider that problem, we might, we might stop, and I think it'd be good for us to ask, well, why? Why would the Corinthians not want to believe in a future bodily resurrection of all those people who have faith in Jesus? And I think that there could potentially be some good answers to this, but I, I, would, I just want to remind you that in chapters 12 through 14, we just got done working through how Paul treated some Corinthian believers who claimed to be hyper-spiritual. They were all about the spirit, not physical bodies. That is, some of the most prominent leaders in the church felt that they were the, remember this word, the pneumaticoi, the spirituals, or the spiritually elite people. They boasted in their showy gifts, like speaking in tongues, and claimed that they were the truly spiritual people. I think commentator Richard Hayes has put his finger right on the heart of the Corinthian problem and why they would reject bodily resurrections when he writes this. He says, the Corinthians were so spiritual, italics, they were so spiritual that they found the notion of a resurrection of the body to be crass and embarrassing. I mean, why would they even need a body? Corinthians might argue. Their, their lofty spiritual experience made bodies completely unnecessary and entirely earthly. Like this sort of thought about their true spiritual condition, as they would describe it, would lead them to ask a whole host of skeptical questions about bodily resurrections. It just so happens, in my opinion, in your Bible, in verse 35, Paul recalls some of those questions. You look down in your Bible at verse 35, I think you can see some of the skeptical questions from the Corinthian elite. When in verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, I think that someone is in Corinth. But someone will ask, question one, how are the dead raised? I mean, how could that be possible? They also ask the next question, with what kind of body do they come for? And so the big problem that Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians 15 is their skepticism regarding the bodily resurrection of believers. And so this morning, what I want to do with you is I want to look at and see how Paul begins his lengthy argument against bodily resurrections. And he starts with a defense and an explanation of the gospel itself in verses 1 through 7. So look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, and I would potentially even in translation, you could say, to the word of the gospel I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared 
to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. As we come to these verses this morning, we begin Paul's lengthy discussion here uh, in defense of the resurrection of believers. He starts by reestablishing something I think that the Corinthians would hold in common with him, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul starts by summarizing the ingredients of the message that he originally preached to them. And he does so in a very succinct manner. Uh, Don't you love it when someone is able to declare succinctly something that in other places and other times may have taken them a great deal of time to communicate to you? So uh, perhaps you paid very close attention to your teacher at school and you wanted to really grasp the understanding because you knew you had a quiz or test coming up and And so you pay attention through all the lectures, through all the times, through all the many days, you're trying to figure out, well, what's important? Isn't it nice when the teacher gives you a window into that and says, what you need to know for the test are these three important parts? It's like, yeah, I've been trying to pay attention all the time. I'm finally glad you said something like that. Or perhaps you remember paying close attention to someone as they gave you directions about how to get somewhere. Uh, Some of us are directionally challenged as it is. But then if we hear a description from someone that involves more than three moves, it's like, just, just oh, please stop. Okay. You know, so they say, okay, you know, what you need to do is you know, go out here and you need to hang, hang a right, and then get on a little farther, hang a left, then you do a U-turn, you do two lefts, a right, and, it, and by the end, aren't you just glad when sometimes someone can come alongside and just give you the dummy edition? Just give me the short abridged. I mean, speak to me right now as if I were a five-year-old child. Right, that's, that's how we, well, what happens in this text is Paul summarizes the content of one and a half years of preaching to the Corinthians, and he makes it quite simple. Remember, he planted the church in Corinth, he was there for a year and a half, but he reminds them of the core content of his preaching in verses one and two. And if Paul had to summarize the core content of his preaching with one word, he would use the word gospel. Gospel. Good news. Matter of fact, he repeats it twice, preaching the gospel twice in verse one and again in verse two. So when Paul went down into the streets and the houses of Corinth, when he first arrived there, he proclaimed to them the gospel of Jesus Christ And the Corinthian believers received it. They were continuing to stand in it. And they were being saved by it as long as they did not have an empty faith. As long as, Paul says, you did not believe in vain. In verses 1 and 2, Paul's reminding them the core content of his preaching. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's challenging them to continue to believe in the gospel that he originally proclaimed to them. Now, after having said that and established that the core content of his preaching was the gospel, Paul then, in verses 3 through 7, begins to uncover exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. 
And men and women, there could not be a more important topic for us to consider this morning. As a matter of fact, if anyone is going to become a member of Colonial Baptist Church, while I'm on the pastoral staff, they will need to be able to declare exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So this passage is so important. Matter of fact, Paul says it's of first importance in the text. Not only is this the way you become a member of Colonial Baptist Church, this is the very way any person will ever be forgiven of their sin. This is the only way. And so let's look closely at verses three through five. Verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. If I were to ask you in those verses, how many parts of the gospel do you see? What would you say? If I were to ask you how many different parts of the gospel that you see in these verses, what would you say? Well, the core content of the gospel can be seen by observing four statements that occur after the colon in the ESV, and each statement starts with the word that. So look in your Bible again. We're trying to ask, what is the core content of the gospel? Verses three and four, after the colon. That, number one, Christ died for our sins. Two, that he was buried. Three, that he was raised on the third day. Four, and that he appeared. Making that observation, you might think that there are four parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which that answer would be a good answer, but I want to suggest that there's an even better way to look at it. And so this morning, I'm going to present to you that there are two undeniable parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, they are found in the first and the third phrase. That's... Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures for our sins. And three, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And that what you have in the second and the fourth statements are actually steps to verify or confirm the first and the third part. And so the death of Christ, first statement, is confirmed by the fact he was buried And the resurrection of Jesus is confirmed by the appearances. And so as we work through this text, I'm going to talk about the two essential components to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verses 3 and 4, first component is that Jesus died for our sins. The way we'll look at both of these is we'll, we'll look at the importance of the component itself, the death and then the resurrection, and then we're also going to look at how it was confirmed in the text. So in verse 3, we see the importance of Jesus' death. Uh, Paul first declares here that he delivered and that they received what was of first importance. 
Among the many things that Paul communicated to the Corinthians and taught them while he was in Corinth, the death of Christ for our sins was of utmost or first importance. Now the words for our sins are important in this gospel text uh, because they assume our alienation from God. There are many different texts in the Bible that make this especially clear. They make it clear that all people are sinners and that because because of our sins, we are separated from God. And so when Paul says in this text that Jesus died for our sins, we need to understand that because of our sins and the holiness of God, we all fall short of God's glorious expectations for human beings. God's goal or intent is for human beings to in no way be impacted by or touched by sin. He doesn't want us to be sinners. He's perfect and he cannot tolerate sinful human beings. So we need to know that someone else would have to pay for or cover our sins. That is, we need someone else to become the means of our forgiveness. So the text says, Jesus died for the sake of or in behalf of our sins. Then it continues that Jesus' death for our sins was done in accordance with the scriptures. Do you see that there? It was done in accordance with the scriptures. This statement is important as well. I mean, every statement that's here is important. But what Paul is saying here is that the scriptures should teach the Corinthians that, that it was true that the Messiah, that Jesus would have to suffer and die. For sins. Now, while we might not know exactly what text of Scripture Paul is imagining here, I think it, it could be some text like Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, which predicted the death of the Savior. Let me just read a few places in Isaiah 53 for you. You don't have to turn there. It said, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquity. So what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, verse verse 3, is that when, when Jesus died for our sins, it was in accordance with some Old Testament text like that one in Isaiah that talked about the fact that it would be the will of God the Father to crush his son for the sake of the sins of human beings. We actually had an opportunity, uh, Ben, our pastoral assistant, read a passage about that this morning, where Jesus took the Old Testament scriptures. He began to open up the Old Testament scriptures to the two men on the road to Emmaus, 
and specifically demonstrate from the Old Testament, places like Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would have to die. So as we understand this first part of the gospel, it is involving the death of Jesus Christ for sins that's in accordance to the scriptures that the Corinthians knew. And that death of Jesus was a verifiable fact. Okay, so go back in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, and look with me at verse 4. That he was buried. The burial of Jesus verifies his death. In other words, the fact that Jesus was buried confirms that he truly became a nekros. That's the Greek word. It can be translated, Jesus truly became a dead person, a lifeless corpse that would have to be disposed of in a regular fashion, in a grave. Men and women, Jesus died. And that is validated by the fact that he was buried. So Paul says here that it is of first importance to believe that Jesus indeed died on a cross for the sake of our sins. That is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first essential component of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. That leads us to the second one in verses 4. Middle verse 4 through verse 11, although we'll only look at verse through verse 7 today. The second essential component of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. So if your pastor ever comes to you and asks you, what are the two core essentials to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You would say the death of Jesus, which is confirmed by the fact that he was buried the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. We'll look here at both the importance and the confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus for a moment. I think the importance of the resurrection is found earlier. Jesus, or Paul said he was delivering to them what was of first importance, and now he includes a description of the resurrection in verse 4. At the end of verse 4, that he was raised from, on the third day in accordance with Scripture. Of first importance, then, is, is then the doctrine of the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus. As Christians, we celebrate this doctrine, don't we? The resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate that Jesus was victorious over death. And this celebration makes our religion different than any other celebration on the entire planet. For there is no other religion in the world that has an Easter Sunday, or for that matter, has a Sunday, a Lord's Day, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Other religions may have a holy city. They have a Mecca, they have a Medina, but they go there to mourn the death of a prophet. We gather to celebrate the life and resurrection of our Lord. You see, the resurrection 
distinguishes Christianity from all other religions in the world. This is such an important topic, I decided to just give you a few glimpses of how Christian theologians have talked about the resurrection of Jesus. These are just short, brief glimpses of how Christian theologians describe the importance of the resurrection. The first ones I'll give you are Robertson and Plummer. They're two commentators, older commentaries on 1 Corinthians, and they said this about the resurrection. They said, Christianity stands or falls with the fact of the resurrection. Stands or it falls. It was an old writer, uh, English writer, H.D.A. Major, who said this. He said, a crucified Messiah was no Messiah at all. He was one rejected by Judaism and accursed by God. It was the resurrection of Jesus that proclaimed him to be the son of God with power. So Major's comments over 100 years ago about the importance of the resurrection is, if all you had was a crucifixion, you'd have nothing but curse. It's the resurrection that declared Jesus to be the Son of God in power. I'll also give you the comments just briefly of John MacArthur, and he described the resurrection this way. He says, the resurrection is the heart that pumps life-giving blood into the gospel. So that was a profound insight. It's the heart that pumps life-giving blood into the gospel. But the resurrection is indispensable not because these theologians claim it to be, as much as I'd respect them. But they're simply declaring the importance that is inherently in the doctrine and the the message of the resurrection itself as Paul describes in verse 4 here. So, Look again at that text. Look at verse 4. It says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. This is an undeniable part of the gospel. And, and Paul says that, again, this happened on the third day, and this can be seen in the Scriptures. However, when we come to this place, it becomes a little bit more difficult for us because Paul says that Jesus' resurrection on the third day can be seen in the scriptures, but the question for us and the hard challenge for us as believers is where in the scriptures is Paul thinking? Again, he he doesn't come right out and tell us, well, it's this passage or that passage, and so uh, we we go back to the Old Testament, go to different places in the scriptures and try to figure out exactly what text Paul has in mind. That has led some scholars as they go back to the Old Testament to bring out some passages that talk about the fact that Israel, the nation of God, would be resurrected, or I'm sorry, would, would be delivered or saved on the third day. Okay, so there are two texts in the Old Testament that talk about Israel being delivered on the third day, that God would rescue her. There's another t- passage in the Kings that talks about one of Israel's kings, Hezekiah, being delivered on the third day as well. But for me, it's really difficult to see how those passages might be what Paul's thinking about, because he's talking about Israel, he's talking about Hezekiah. And so some people believe that Paul's talking about Jonah here. So I'm going to ask you to flip back in your Bibles for a moment. I'll try to make a case here for something for you. Go back to Jonah chapter 1 in your Bibles. So the question we're pursuing for just a moment is, what text, text of Scripture, is Paul imagining to speak about, does he believe, would speak about Jesus being raised on the third day. 
And so some scholars, writers say it's Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. So I want to read that for you. Jonah 1, 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay. Well, as I interacted with these scholars who work with this, I said, well, what I do see is three days and three nights. Okay, but I still struggled to kind of see their point. But in order to understand how this might be the text that Paul's alluding to, flip forward in your Bible to one other text, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. answer the question how this text might be the text that Paul's considering. We go to the New Testament, we go to Matthew chapter 12 and to the very words of Jesus. I want you to read with me. I'll read it out loud. You just follow along. Look at Matthew 12 and verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So here, Jesus declared that he would only give the sign of Jonah to these adulterous Jews who were demanding a sign. And then Jesus then identifies the sign of Jonah with the timing of his resurrection. So it seems that Jesus uses the Jonah passage as a metaphor or as a sign. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, so Jesus will be in the grave for three days. So back in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says that the scriptures give testimony to the fact that Jesus would have to be in the grave, would be in the grave for three days and would rise again, it may be that he has got Matthew's account of the explanation of Jesus in his mind. Okay? If you're personally going to pinpoint it, this is a really tough question try to answer. You say, well, what text? Where, where is he talking? I think, I think Paul might already be familiar with what Matthew has Jesus saying about Jonah and Jesus being in the grave for three days. So then what happens? Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's not done, though, and so in verses 5 through 7, he demonstrates that the resurrection of Jesus as taught in the Scriptures is confirmed or verified by something as well. 
And Paul informs us that the resurrection of Jesus is confirmed by all of the appearances that he made after his resurrection, before his ascension. So, uh, here we see uh, that Paul will talk about six appearances, five occurring during that time period, and one later on. But let's look at these, these appearances. Look in your Bible at verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas. The first appearance that Paul talks about here, or he explains, is that Jesus appeared to Simon Peter. I'm just going to go very quickly uh, through these texts with you. Of course, the end of the Gospel of John talks about the fact that Jesus made a special appearance to Simon Peter. Peter needed to see Jesus resurrected. And so Christ appeared to him. He then moves on in the end of verse 12 to say, then he appeared to the 12, the 12 being the 12 disciples. I think that the number that's used here, the 12, would be a description or a title which would identify a group of people. Of course, Jesus appeared to 11 of the 12 disciples. There was one who passed away before he had a chance to see the resurrection of Jesus. That was Judas Iscariot. But the number 12 here is a title. It's a title that would just identify exactly who Paul's describing. Of all the followers of Jesus, the 12 would be the ones who walked with him, the ones who who lived life with him, the ones who were a, a part of that special group. Matter of fact, one commentator says that when Paul mentions the appearance of the 12, appearance to the 12 here, he's giving evidence of the quality of an apostolic testimony. These men would know if it was really Jesus, giving the quality of an apostolic testimony. That gives way to the next appearance in verse 6, where Paul emphasizes quantity. Look at verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. We don't know exactly where this account or this, you know, if this account is found in the Gospels or not, not, but Paul's aware that at one time Jesus appeared after his resurrection, before his ascension, to over 500 people at the same time. This This would mean that, you know, there'd be no collusion that could be possible with this large of a group of people. And so he's dealing with quantity here. Then he says in verse... James, I think he's referencing the, uh, the brother of Jesus, was not converted, did not become a believer until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is one day Jesus sees his brother James after his resurrection and James becomes a slave of Christ and a pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And so what you have in James is a testimony of a critic and then you have the appearance to the apostles. He says then in verse 7, then to all the apostles. This would include people beyond the group of the 12 disciples, people like perhaps Barnabas or Paulus or others like them, these many witnesses then each confirmed the resurrection of Jesus Christ in accordance with the scripture. And so as we work through these texts, we find that Jesus' death and resurrection are verifiable 
and they form the essential components of the gospel itself. So we work through this text. We'll say verses 8 through 11 for next week. But as we close, might I just ask you to consider a question. <clears throat> Where do you stand with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? I remember a painful conversation I had with a, with a friend a few years ago. His name was Gene Kotwicka. Gene was formerly married to a woman by the name of Millie, who came to know the Lord at a church, our church, in Norway, Michigan, as a part of a church plant team in Michigan. Millie was only saved for a few years, though, before she passed away. It was on her deathbed that she asked her pastors not to ever give up on Jean. And so when someone asks you for something on their deathbed and you say that you'll do it, I felt a moral obligation to continue to try to invest in Jean. Jean would never come to church. Jean was an atheist. And so off and on, I tried to stay in Jean's life. One day, Jean called me and said that he wanted me to perform his wedding. This is a bit shocking because Jean was about 70 years of age. And it was just a short time after his former marriage. So it just kind of caught me a little off guard. So I thought, boy, this might be a good opportunity to talk to Gene. So I asked him to meet me at a restaurant. As I went to the restaurant, though, I was shocked by something even more interesting. And that is, as I sat down with him and his prospective bride, I soon found out that his prospective bride was a believer in Jesus Christ as well. And so I thought, just being led by the Spirit, I felt, okay, this is the time, again, where I've got to ask Gene where he stands. And so I asked him, point blank in that restaurant, I said, where do you stand on the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Potentially trying to marry a woman here who says that she's a believer in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the covering of her sins. Gene, where do you stand? Well, Gene tried to avoid the question. Gene started by saying, Jesus was a good man. And he said something like, many people believe that he was resurrected. But I just, in the moment, felt as if I wasn't going to let him get away with the answer. And so I asked him, no, my question is, where do you stand? And Gene said, I cannot believe that anyone would ever come back from the dead. And so men and women, Gene was not a Christian. He would not be accepted by God because of his sin. And so I appealed to him one last time. Gene, will you accept Christ as your Savior? And he said he would not. Now tragically, I think it was two or three days later, within that same week, Gene was at the hospital having a routine fitness check. And he had a heart attack. And he died. 
Now, unless Gene changed his mind in those two days, the sobering truth, men and women, is that Gene is in hell. Suffering in anguish as a consequence to his own sin and separated from the Christ who died and who rose again for sins. If you're here today and you have never believed that Jesus died for your sins, And that he was raised on the third day by the power of God. May I tell you, nothing is of more importance than for you to declare that to God. So as I close, while I pray, would you please declare to God from your heart, that you believe that he sent his son, that his son lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross, and that God raised him from the dead for our sins. Won't you do that? Let's pray together. Father, perhaps there's someone someone in the auditorium, someone in one of the overflow rooms, someone listening to the sermon in some way or another this morning who would find themselves like Gene, skeptical or struggling to believe that your son arose from the dead. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is wrestling, Lord, that even this morning they would declare to you from their heart that they believe. Lord, we're so thankful that Jesus died for the sake of our sins as a means to cover our sins before God. We know this is the only way to be converted. And so, Lord, for your own glory and through your strength at this moment, we pray that someone listening to the sermon would believe in Jesus. Pray that you will do this. In Jesus' name, amen.